This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, I am honored and delighted to be joined by Dr. Brian Miller in what I suppose is becoming some sort of series on the economics and big picture look at healthcare in the United States these days in the in the 2000s. Um, Dr. Miller is possibly one of the most accomplished people I've had the privilege to talk to through this podcast, uh, particularly outside the field of neurosurgery. And I really want to thank Dr. Anthony DiGiorgio, who was on the show recently for putting us in touch. Um, Dr. DiGiorgio joked how he was an armchair economics, uh, economist and uh, you know a fan of the field, but not really qualified. And I think with uh, Dr. Miller today, as as our listeners will learn, he is perhaps qualified enough for seven different guests. So, Dr. Miller, I'm very grateful to have you on the show. Welcome. Please say hello and introduce yourself to our listeners. Thank you for having me. I'm an assistant professor of medicine and a practicing hospitalist or desk jockey, as I like to refer myself <laughs> as uh, at Hopkins. I practice at Johns Hopkins Hospital in East Baltimore. I'm also a non-resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, which is a think tank focused on capitalism, free markets, and free speech and competition in D.C. I worked for four regulatory agencies. So I worked at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. I worked at the Federal Trade Commission on mergers. I worked at the FDA. I also worked at the FCC, um, and I also am now a commissioner on MedPAC, the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission. And you know, because of all of my various hats, I have my usual disclosure, which my views are my own and do not represent those of any of my employers or affiliations. Nowadays, I split my time between the practice of possible medicine uh, consulting my neurosurgical colleagues when I see something very scary on a CT scan. Uh, and then they always nicely show up at 2 a.m. in the morning and tell me it's nothing to worry about and never get upset at me for calling, for which I'm eternally grateful. Never uh, you, yeah, it, it, occasionally I'm, I'm blushing with embarrassment over calling, but, uh, you know, everyone's always very kind. And the rest of my time I spend on policy. I've met a 20 person policy research team. So I, interact a lot with a variety of people in the Washington policy community and see how the sausage is made. And now, besides uh, working as an internist at one of the vaunted hallowed halls of medicine in our country and all the three-letter agencies you mentioned, you can now add honored guest on the neurosurgery podcast to the CV. Um, but before we drill into the stated topic of conversation today, which as our listeners will know, is hospital consolidation and, and large systems of healthcare in our country. I am just curious about how someone like you comes to be. You know, we interview mainly neurosurgeons on this podcast, but our listenership includes neurosurgeons, residents and trainees like myself, but also a lot of medical students, college students who are interested in pursuing medicine as a career. And you seem to be someone, Dr. Miller, who really does wear two hats and is really functioning at a very high level in two related but completely different spheres of human activity. So, I mean, on a basic level, where are you from? What was your, like, what did you want to do when you were a child? And was it medicine that was your first love? And then you were drawn to the systems level stuff? Or 
were you always a policy wonk and then got the you know bit by the bug of medicine during college? How did this all happen? So uh, I think it's fair to say that my head is swollen from artificial intelligence, uh, which is why I'm able to wear two hats. Uh, but but all jokes aside, I originally was a chemistry major at the University of Washington in Seattle. I went to med school at Northwestern, and I quickly realized that our delivery system, as all of us feel, is not very patient-centered. Right? Like the patient wants to get discharged at noon, so they make can make such and such flight. They get discharged at 5 p.m., miss their family reunion. You're in clinic as a medical student. And you know the specialist who's working very hard is two hours late, and you ask the professor, "Why are you two hours late?" And they say, "This is the way the system is designed." You go talk to the business folks, and they sort of feel like frequently their hands are tied, and sometimes they are, and sometimes they aren't. And very quickly, you realize that many of these problems are policy problems. They're they're business and operational problems but they're often a result of poorly thought out policies or policies that have a huge litany of unintended consequences. So I actually did two residencies, Glutton for Punishment, one in internal medicine at Georgetown and another which was a public health and preventive medicine residency at Hopkins, and that's how I was able to work for all those regulatory agencies. That is just fascinating. And I know that part of your work with the agencies and part of your work in the public health and regulatory sphere has been in the management, overseeing, and sometimes blocking of healthcare mergers. So again, for our listeners to set the stage, talk in broad terms about hospital system consolidation. I know that in the past 20 years, there's been almost 2,000 mergers that we've seen in the country. Um, why do hospital systems pursue this? And why do you think this trend is on the rise? So hospitals are actually rational market actors. You say, wow, what does that mean? <laughs> so if I'm a hospital executive, you know, I, I and you know, 60% of hospitals are, are tax exempt hospitals. And then there's a segment of investor owned hospitals, some of which are publicly traded companies, and some of them are uh, privately held, and then there's also a share of government-run hospitals and the Veterans Health Administration and the military health system. So I'm talking about non-governmental hospitals here primarily. Mm. Um, if you're a hospital executive, right, you have a, a pay scale and you may have a 20, 30-member board and you have performance targets. There are many ways that you can meet those performance targets. One of the ways you can do is um, you can show up uh, at your local state house or your proxy or here in Washington and ask for higher Medicare or Medicaid rates, right? That's a valid way to change your profit and loss statement for your business, especially when a lot of it is subsidized by the American taxpayer. Another choice as an executive is you can raise barriers to entry, right? You can ban physicians from owning and operating hospitals. You can create something or support something called the certificate of need process where you have to get approval from a state body or state agency or state commission to build, apply for and build a new facility, right? So you can lobby for increased reimbursement rates from public payers. You can 
create regulatory barriers to entry for competitors. Obviously, that then allows you to charge higher prices. Another thing that you can do is you can buy your largest competitor or the competitor down the street mm. or the competitor in a, a neighboring market. Because if you merge, then you can demand higher prices through increased market power from commercial health insurers. And you said, wow, these just sound like really complex you know, strategies to execute. And the answer is they are, but they are easier than option four. Option four is improving clinical operations of your business to make it better and more efficient, <laughs> which is sort of what we all want as patients and also as physicians hasn't really happened. And if you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is one of those phenomenal agencies that could and can and does, uh, they produce, you know, these annual measures of productivity. And one of the things that they do is they look at labor productivity for a wide variety of sectors in the economy. And they have a, a pretty good measure for labor productivity for private community hospitals. And on average, over the past 25 years, that measure has been flat. Hmm. Now, that's very interesting to me because as you describe it, that last option, just actually running the hospital better and having better outcomes and better operations, as you said, seems like the obvious choice. And it seems to me in my lived experience where you talk to physicians of all specialties and we are increasingly dissatisfied at our jobs working for these large systems. We're hemmed in, we have fewer options to choose what to order, where to send patients, et cetera. And like any normal human, we like being able to make choices and doing what we think is right for the reasons we think it's right. And then you talk to patients, and I'll just use the example of my parents, they are constantly frustrated trying to make an appointment with a doctor, if they need a referral, if they need to go get a lab, everything is within a system and the doctor they see can't send them to the person they'd like to see, or they can't go see a specialist that their friends saw and they have a relationship with because they have to go see this person that they've never met and so on and so forth. And so the people delivering the healthcare seem to be less happy in these systems. The people receiving the healthcare seem to be less happy in these systems. And yet, more and more consolidation of larger and larger health systems is continuing to promulgate across our country. Um, do you see this as a good thing? And I'll ask you that as a clinician, as a citizen, and as an economist. Well, to be clear, I'm a policy analyst as opposed to a PhD economist. Fair. But I would say that for all three of those, my answer is definitely not. So one, as a physician, we have an enormous loss of the locus of control over clinical practice. Mm. And it is fine, I, I am an, an employee. Many of us are employees. The problem when you are, are an employee is that you have limited power to change how things are done clinically. Where your patient goes, where they get labs, which doctor they see, control over nursing care, the labor structure for the unit or clinic you work on. You have very limited ability to change that. And for some physicians, that's okay. And they're okay with that management system. 
but not everybody likes practicing medicine one way. I think we can all agree that we are all different in some way, shape, or fashion. And the problem with consolidation is if you are in a labor market and you only have one or two employers to choose from, what that means is that your ability to shape your clinical practice in your day, and hence the quality of care that your patients have, is largely dependent upon external factors, most of which are outside of your control. And the National Academy of Medicine had this great report on physician burnout. And you know everyone talks about the electronic health record and administrative burden. I agree wholeheartedly that those and other factors drive burnout. But one that hasn't been mentioned is this and emphasized, although it was discussed in this report, but hasn't been discussed in the public policy community or in the media, is the externalization of the locus of control over clinical practice. Hmm. So what that means for you as a physician is if you know something is better for your patient and it's hard for you to do that in the large massive health system that you work for, you're going to feel bad. Because most physicians do want to do the right thing for their patient or what they think is the right thing for that patient. And then it creates a lot of friction and stress and consumes a lot of time and effort and mental and emotional energy to make whatever it is happen for that patient, be it getting that surgery scheduled in the right time, getting them to see that specific doctor that you want them to see, whatever it is. That generates stress for the doctor and drives burnout. And of course, it generates stress for the patient. I would say as a patient, I would be even more concerned because as a patient, one, you can't have your doctor guide you in that decision making because there's somebody else there in the room with you making that decision, which is the large, massive health system that the doctor works for. And frequently, health systems require internal referral. So is my doctor sending me to the best doctor or are they sending me to the best doctor within the set of doctors that are employed by that health system? Or are they sending me to the new doctor in the health system's new cardiology practice because the new doctor has space and the health system says that's the appointment that we have available. Too bad, so sad if you want to see someone else. So then I worry that as a patient, <coughs> I am not getting necessarily access to the best care. And, you know, there's a significant information asymmetry. And so we are dependent as patients upon our physicians to give us good advice. Now, I would say finally, for the taxpayer, I am super concerned. Because when you have consolidation, the joke in Washington, I might say with policy is, is you can sort of walk down the street and pick your favorite economist with a certain view and get whatever answer you're looking for. So you could pick a conservative economist, you could pick a liberal economist, you could pick a libertarian economist, you could pick a centrist economist, you could pick a progressive economist, and you, you can sort of like construct your panel and like put all these economists or experts on it and get different answers, all of which, you know, to some degree have significant validity, even though they're all different. What's really fun about consolidation, and in particular, consolidation in the healthcare industry or care delivery is is that economists across the political spectrum all agree it is bad. So there is uniform agreement that consolidation in care delivery results in higher prices for services, higher than insurance premiums, and higher out-of-pocket costs for patients, all of which are bad and are partially borne by taxpayers and patients. 
<coughs> the other thing that has happened is I would say that there is relative uniform agreement that mergers do not raise quality. So that's the constant argument that hospitals make. They say, oh, well, you know, we have all these regulatory burdens. <coughs> we have all these IT costs and we need to merge in order to manage this and do a good job. There was a great New England Journal of Medicine study a couple of years ago that looked at quality after mergers and found no improvement. What it did find, which was particularly depressing, but also sort of fits with what most of us know, is decrements in the patient experience. So I would say for physicians, it's bad in terms of not having control over your clinical practice and being able to do the right thing for patients. It also probably suppresses your wages and your ability to negotiate working conditions, right? Because if you move, you have to go through licensure, you have to go through credentialing, certificate, you know, privileging, all the nonsense, plus the added disruption to your family. For patients, it's bad because you have decreased choice and decreased customization of your care. And then from a policy perspective, it's bad because you get higher costs, lower quality. Wow. Um, I think the one question I would like to ask you after that incredibly thorough and multifaceted panning of uh, the consolidation you know, craze we're seeing in our country is perhaps to flip that and steel man this trend that we're seeing. And, and I'll ask it to you in this way. Part of your work has involved being the physician expert and a consultant to the government regulating and sometimes blocking these mergers happening. So in your experience uh, inside of that process and in these rooms, in these conversations, how does the federal government and these regulatory bodies, how does the government decide whether to block or permit one of these large mergers? And so in those cases where they decide to let it go through, is there an upside to it? Can you steel man for our listeners this trend that you've just given a litany of alarming knock-on effects of, of what we're seeing happen? So there are, on average, 60 to 70 hospital and ambulatory clinic mergers a year that meet the Hart-Scott-Rodino threshold for reporting, meaning you know, there's a, a, a certain financial threshold above which uh, corporations have to report the merger uh, before it happens to the Federal Trade Commission to give the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice Antitrust Division an opportunity to look at the transaction and decide whether they want more information through usually a second request, and then whether they you know choose to challenge it. Problem is, is that uh, it takes time and it takes human capital to review and challenge murders. So if the agency can only challenge a couple of murders a year because it takes 10 to 20 attorneys to build a case and then they have to have internal experts um, in addition to external experts work on cases, if you challenge, as a, you as a competition authority, challenge three mergers a year and there are 70 mergers proposed, that means 67 went through. And maybe in the agency's analysis, a certain number of those should also be blocked, but they don't have adequate staff. So mm -hmm. one answer I would say to solving this problem is giving the agency uh, an ability, funding to hire more staff to go after hospital and clinic mergers. In today's political environment, given a 
you know, the newly politicized antitrust enforcement, that's probably unlikely. And so then you walk further upstream and you say, okay, so if the agency is seeing 60, 70 mergers a year, what are the policies and market conditions that are driving that corporate behavior? And is there a way that I can change that environment? Right? Like, what can I do to either change the incentives for mergers or create incentives for other people to enter and build new hospitals to increase competition? And so the, I guess the great answer is, yes, antitrust enforcement is important. We probably should do more of it. But there's a laundry list of other policies that we could undertake to fight consolidation. Well, this uh, actually leads us exactly to where I'd like to land this plane, which is a direct question, um, not in theory or in the abstract, but really for our listeners who, again, are predominantly neurosurgeons or those interested in the field of neurosurgery, uh, who therefore are physicians, high achieving people, usually with income. And then trainees like myself and medical students who may not have yet differentiated themselves in their careers, even college students. And so, Dr. Miller, in a real practical, in our daily lives way, what can someone do to get involved and help combat this trend? Because, again, not to blow smoke, you're obviously very accomplished in this world and you've chosen to spend your time that way. Many of the people listening are going to be primarily clinical in their day-to-day lives. and They're not going to be able to wear these two hats that you wear. So for physicians with means, intelligence, and the desire to contribute some way, can you point our listeners toward an organization, somewhere to donate, some way that they can chip in and fight against this trend if they would wish to? I would say make sure that the organized medical specialties are accountable. Right. And I mean, when I say accountable, the organized medical specialties are doing a good job of advocating for physician fee schedules and other physician issues. But this is an issue where the medical trades need to step up to the plate and look out for patients and physicians together and say, collectively, I don't think this is right. This is wrong. Here is a list of things that we should do. We should fight certificate of need, right? Like, That is a battle that happens in state houses between hospitals and health plans and government agencies. And physicians should be there saying that this is wrong because it restricts patient access and restricts competition. Another example is the fight over physician-owned hospitals and Stark Law, which prohibits physician self-referral for designated health services and Medicare. Corporations self-refer all the time. If we think self-referral is a problem, we should address it for all market participants equally. And organized medicine should be the voice pointing this out. So I, I would say that the organized medical trades are the first place to start and making sure that they are making good policy decisions that are in the interests of patients and the profession. Wonderful. Um, as we reach our final minutes, if, if I could, I'd like to ask you a couple rapid fire questions that will be uh, a little less wonky and a little more fun. Um, mm-hmm. I asked Dr. DiGiorgio if he could have dinner and drinks with any economist, who would he pick? But um, you're a man of Hopkins. And so if you could pick any physician from any point in history to spend an evening of discussion, dinner, drinks with, who would you pick and why? Well, you know, I don't think anybody has asked me that in a long time. I would actually pick 
and I, I would not pick Osler, actually. I would pick um, our good friend Thomas Starzl, who performed the first human liver transplant, because I'd want to understand what that was like and what motivated him to do something different at a time when it was very hard to make those decisions and to do new, new surgical procedures. Hmm. Very interesting. I know. And, it, and it's not that it's not the thing that most people would really think. Right. It's because, you know, the field of um, transplantation, when he was around, he was one of the first cowboys doing it. And it was a hard time and it's controversial. And in medicine, doing something different in a profession that is by very definition risk averse takes a certain kind of person. Yeah. Well, that's a very thoughtful answer. I, I appreciate you tipping your hat to the obvious answer and then uh, giving that very thoughtful response. Um, this may be a little dicey or hot water for you, but if for whatever reason you chose to leave Hopkins and you had to go hang your shingle elsewhere, I won't ask where or what state or that sort of thing, but what sort of practice do you think you would choose? Would you join a large system? Would you try to open a true private practice? What do you think you would do with yourself clinically if you had to leave academic medicine? If I had to leave academic medicine, I would probably go into primary care. Uh, I, as corny as it sounds, I really actually enjoy general internal medicine because of the wide range of people. And I feel like you get to see a lot of things that you wouldn't necessarily otherwise see. So I would probably go into primary care and I would probably focus on an elderly population in a rural setting. Hmm. And then finally, this is something I like to ask anyone who really does have two professions and, and operates at a high level in two different spheres. I won't ask what you prefer or what gives you more joy or happiness, because based on everything you've said, I would I assume you would say practicing medicine. But if you were to assess yourself honestly, do you think you're better at clinical medicine or healthcare policy? I would say... Most people would say that I'm better at healthcare policy. I would think that I'm actually better at clinical medicine, partially because doing policy makes me understand the mess that is clinical practice. Mm. I understand formulary design, insurance benefit design. That allows me to think differently about what the barriers that patients face. So if you're trying to discharge an old lady from the hospital and she can't arrange, you know, we can't get the home care arranged or we're trying to get someone discharged to a skilled nursing facility and the facility is not taking it, I know which questions to ask, right? The skilled nursing facility might not want that patient because the chemotherapy drug is too expensive and that makes the uh with the per diem rate it makes the the skilled nursing facility not be able to you know even break even on that patient in which case the hospital picks up the tab so i would say well i think i have very good clinical instincts on top of that 
my health policy knowledge actually makes me a more effective physician. And I would also say that it is unfortunate that in 2023, that that is required. <laughs> well said. And, and I would actually point out um, the, the way you opened that answer was most people would say, and I think that a lot of your accomplishments in the public health and the systems level things are visible from the outside. But I think anyone would agree that within medicine, your accomplishments as a physician clinically are often you and a patient alone in a room, and they're a lot less visible to onlookers. Um, but that warms my heart because I think everyone I've spoken to who's a practicing physician that also has a role in administration, usually just in a department or in a hospital, to a, to a person has said the ability to navigate and influence the system you work in is extraordinarily useful, but only useful insofar as you leverage that for the sake of your patients. Um, and I, I, I would say I, I don't think I necessarily influence this direct system in which I work. I think I can influence the policy conversation at a national right. level, but the ability to actually sort of go through the weeds and get the garbage out of the way so the patient can get what they need is something that I think makes me a much better physician. And, and frankly, you know, practicing medicine uh, selfishly is very rewarding because it's very tangible. You're actually doing something for somebody and you either are successful or you're not. And if you're not, right, well, you get immediate feedback, right, because people can yell at you. You're standing right there with them. Uh, so to me, that sort of keeps me grounded. And like, patients have really good ideas. Like there, many patients are very smart and know the things that are broken and can point us in the right direction, either directly or even indirectly, just through their experience. So I would say I am lucky to be able to practice medicine. One, because, you know, you get to actually do something to help somebody. Importantly, though, it helps you. It's a, a lens to see where the problems really are. Like, as I said, I got interested in policy because I was interested in business because I saw a terrible patient experience in a variety of settings, which I thought was a business problem, but it really was a business problem that was caused by policy. Hmm. Well, very good. Dr. Miller, I, I know that we uh, we're running a bit long here, but I really appreciate your time uh, having this conversation. Uh, as stated many times, it's a, a topic of uh, high importance for anyone practicing or receiving healthcare in this country, which is everyone in this country. And uh, it's a trend that's only continuing to rise. So for any of our listeners who are interested, we'll point you to Dr. Miller's social media presence, um, some of the other activities he's involved in through his website, and he's given you some advice for how to get involved. If anyone involved in healthcare, either clinically or in administration, has further questions or would like to contest or challenge anything that's been said today, please Write to us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. I will try to wrangle Dr. Miller to come back and answer some of those further questions in another episode. We love hearing from our listeners at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. Again, Dr. Brian Miller, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself 
Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.